Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 19. This morning we're continuing in the narrative of Lot, uh, and particularly in the narrative of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're taking this in three parts over three Sundays. Last Sunday, Pastor Nathan uh, introduced this part of the narrative uh, by, by covering the the uh, exchange between Abraham and God. One of the, the three men that visited Abraham there is, in fact, God himself. And, uh, and he stops, and he and Abraham talk. He tells Abraham what he's about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah. He does this because Abraham is a type of Christ. Abraham is the, the head of a covenant. Uh, and he wants to, to see, if you will, if we can speak of God this way, he wants to see if Abraham will recognize his role and stand up and intercede on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he does. Uh, he does intercede rather boldly with God on behalf of the city. Nonetheless, uh, the agreement, if you will, is that if there are ten righteous, the city, the entire city will be spared. This morning, we come to Genesis 19. In a minute, we'll read, beginning in verse 1, as Lot is rescued together with his family from the city. Now, what we have in these two passages is the establishing for us, from a narrative perspective, the justice of God in judgment. God's judgment is just. He has shown himself in his conversation with Abraham to be willing to spare the city if there are but ten righteous in the city. And in fact, there are not even ten in the city. God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is just. And we also want to remember as we read this morning that all of these, these narratives in the Old Testament of judgment and salvation are little microcosms. They are anticipations of the final judgment and salvation, which are two sides of the same coin. Remember, in one act in history, God executes both judgment and salvation. Uh, we saw that in the flood. We see that in the exodus. And this morning we see it as we come to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The truth that we see in the text here is a reminder that judgment is coming. And that that judgment is just. That there is no one in the face of God's justice who can cry out, unfair, not right. Who are you, God, to do this? God's judgment is just. This morning, before we read, the, uh, the three things that I want you to be paying attention to are the dangers of being in the world. The dangers of being in the world. The mercy and patience of God in salvation. The mercy and patience of God in salvation. And finally, the power of God on display in salvation. The power of God on display in salvation. Let me pray for us and we will read this morning's text. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that over and over again in history, you have shown yourself to be a just God and because of your perfect justice, judgment is coming against unrighteousness. Father, we thank you that though we know ourselves to be unrighteous, though we know ourselves to be sinners, nonetheless, you have also over and over again in history revealed yourself to be a God of salvation. You have given to us Jesus Christ as our refuge. And we thank you 
that even when we have lingered, you have snatched us up and delivered us from judgment. Father, we give thanks and praise for this, and we pray this morning as we read, as I preach, that your spirit will be at work in this word as it goes out. Father, change our hearts and our minds. Make us more like Christ as we sit under the word. Prepare us for the day that Christ is coming again. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's word, Genesis 19, beginning in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, daughters, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, it's a, a fascinating passage and one that as we, we unpack it this morning is going to, uh, to reveal itself to be a tremendously realistic, uh, honest, 
portrayal of Lot. Uh, It makes Lot into neither a hero nor a villain, but shows him to be uh, a man who is, uh, Peter will say later, righteous, and yet uh, filled with problems here. And this is our first point this morning, the dangers of being in the world. First, let me be clear, we're in the world because God has placed us in the world. Uh, it's not that, the, that being in the world is dangerous, therefore we should not be in the world. But, but Christ, in His high priestly prayer in John 17, speaks of us as those who are in the world and yet not of the world. That is, that, that the world is where we are, and it, it's not by accident that we're here. We are here on mission for Christ. We talked about this recently, uh, that, that we exist in the world as those who are being saved by Christ because we have a mission that we have been given to go out into the world with the good news, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even as Lot was sent to his sons-in-law to tell them of the coming judgment, we are sent out into the world to tell the world of the coming judgment. We are in the world. God has left us here for a purpose. It's not an accident. But to be of the world is to belong to the world. It's to look like the world. It is to believe what the world believes, to speak and to think and to act as the world speaks and thinks and acts. And we are not to be of the world. Now, that's a very simple little formula. It becomes very difficult to live out, doesn't it? Because to not be of the world does not mean that we are to remove ourselves from the world that we're to to go off into monasteries and to convents and to separate ourselves from the world rather than to be tainted by them. God has left us in the world for a reason. But that brings us to this first point this morning. The fact that God has left us in the world but reminded us that we are not of the world presents certain dangers. To be in the world risks to act risks acting as if we are of the world. It's, uh, it's not difficult to imagine how this happens. If you've ever uh, spent any considerable time in a different culture, you find that in that culture, as you come to learn that culture, the easiest thing to do is to begin to adopt that culture, to eat the things they eat and to eat the way they eat, uh, to, to speak the way they speak, to dress the way they dress. It's to fit in. Fitting in is easier. Not fitting in, being an outsider, excludes you from certain benefits of being a member of that culture. And it's not even as though we we always uh, explicitly think to ourselves, I'm going to do this. We find ourselves just more and more, the longer we're in this other culture, uh, more and more looking like the culture in which we live. And listen, for, for, in many respects, that's, that's amoral. That is, that, that to do so is not wrong. There's, there's nothing particularly immoral about the, the, the food that a particular culture eats or doesn't eat, right? But part and parcel of the culture in which we live is that there are issues of morality. There are issues of integrity. Because ultimately, though there are perhaps hundreds of thousands of distinct cultures in the world, 
there are ultimately only two. There is the culture of this world, which is in rebellion against God, which makes itself its own God, in which each person ultimately decides for themselves what is right or wrong, or submits themselves to a community that says for itself what is right or wrong. There is that culture, to use the, the, the term the world, the way John does often in his gospel and his epistles, as Christ does in his teaching, the world as distinct from the people of God. We live in that world, and we are, however, because we are not of that world, we have a, a different culture, a distinct culture, a culture that is defined by the Word of God. We are to think and speak and act consistent with God's character, obedient to God, in submission to God, in submission to Christ, our King, who has, has overwhelmingly, by His Word and as His Spirit works through this Word, communicated to us what our culture is to be as those who are in Christ. We see this in the text this morning. Isn't it interesting? Abraham and Lot are both in the world. Abraham is, is living outside the city. Lot, though, is in the city. And we get these, these little indications in the narrative here that Lot, on the one hand, has done well to recognize the wickedness of the city. But he hasn't recognized all the wickedness, has he? We get these little insights in the passage this morning into ways in which he has capitulated to the wicked culture of the city in which he lives. There, there's a, uh, a deeply ingrained, very serious and important cultural value that he's participating in here that is a good thing, and that is hospitality. Hospitality to the point of his own harm. But then he does this shocking thing, doesn't he? That cannot be defended by pointing to hospitality. He offers his daughters to the men outside the door. It's difficult. We, we're going to wrestle with it more next week than we will this morning. Difficult to understand how Peter in the New Testament can, can call Lot righteous when he's done this. And it's not just in that moment that he offered his daughters, but did you notice the fact that his daughters are betrothed, engaged to be married to two men in the city? Men who, according to the narrative, were outside of Lot's door even now. Look back at the text, at what it says about who's outside of his door, verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man. Now, sometimes the Bible will speak in big categories. It will use words like all and every, and it's, it's, it's intentionally exaggerating for effect. Like when it says that all of Jerusalem came out to see John the Baptist. It's unlikely that the streets were quiet in Jerusalem as John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness. It's, it's talking about just how popular John was. There were a great many coming out to John, but this text will not allow that reading. This is not an overstatement for effect. It says, to the last man. Lot has betrothed his daughters to two men in the city 
who are engaged in the very wickedness that Lot himself knows is not right. We, uh, we could spend a lot of time beating up on Lot this morning for that, uh, but I want to get us to the point. Lot was willing to compromise in order to keep the parts of this culture that he loved. And, and this is the, the subtlety of Lot's narrative here and why I think it's so important for us, so germane to us this morning. Lot could have congratulated himself, and probably did, on recognizing the wickedness of the men of the city and being other than the men of the city. But look at the, 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 the ways I, I started to say subtle. It's not entirely subtle, is it? Look at the ways in which he's, he's bought in. Uh, he's sitting in the gate at the beginning of the chapter. To sit in the gate is to be a man of prominence. To sit in the gate is to be a man who has the right to exercise judgment in the city. You do business in the gate. You rule on legal matters when you are one who sits in the gate. And this is where we find Lot when the narrative opens. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Lot is an important man in the city. And he didn't get that way by simply picking a seat in the gate one day. He has integrated himself into this culture deeply. And while he may be able still to recognize some of the things that are evil, he is willing to give his daughters to two men in marriage who are in the city and who are themselves guilty of that wickedness. It's uh, incredibly similar to our current culture, isn't it? We are in the world, and that is by God's design. We cannot, nor should we attempt to escape it. But listen, brothers and sisters, being in the world carries with it certain dangers. We are inescapably a part of the culture in which we live, surrounded by those who are in rebellion against God and who have made themselves their own gods. And they decide what is right and wrong. And increasingly in our culture, you may have noticed, they're insisting that we agree with them. Live and let live is no longer the cultural moment in the West. And we may congratulate ourselves on recognizing some of the great wicked elements of the culture. We may congratulate ourselves on recognizing that abortion is taking a life, that it's wicked. We may congratulate ourselves on recognizing that same-sex attraction and acting upon that attraction and transgenderism, all of these things, we may recognize that those are sin according to God's word. And we may congratulate ourselves on recognizing it. But what, what haven't we recognized? What sneaks in? Things that, that you may think to yourself are of very little value. Like observing the Sabbath according to God's word. Taking hold of the gift God has given us in the Sabbath and reveling in that gift. And when the world demands that you give that gift up, saying to the world, I will not give up this gift at any cost. I will be together with God's people 
on the Lord's day. I will worship him. I will receive all of the gifts that he has to give on this day, and I will give the entire day to him, resting in the finished work of Christ in a way that is not even possible the other six days of the week. What about, and remember, I am an under-shepherd, but I am also a sheep. I have had to sit under this text this week myself. What about the things we read, the things we listen to, the things we watch, the things we value? And this is coming back to Lot, remember. Lot lingers. Why does Lot linger? He's been told of the destruction that's coming. He's believed it. He's gone to his sons-in-law and said, come on, let's go. If you don't come with me, you will surely die under the judgment of God. And yet when the sun comes up and the angels say to him, now, you have to go now, he lingers. I want to be careful here. The text doesn't tell us why he lingered. But certainly, it's reasonable, especially given what will happen to his wife in next week's text, to believe that he lingers because he just can't get himself to leave the city. He just can't get himself to lose those things that he values. Those things. See, Peter tells us. Look at what Peter says. This is Second Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And if he, that is God, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked... For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Why? Why not rather leave? We've, we've observed this before, haven't we, with Lot? Why is it that when Abraham and Lot can no longer live together, Lot would rather move away from Abraham than say to Abraham, you are the one through whom the promises are coming. Take all of my things, just let me remain in your tents. And even now, even now, tormented, Peter tells us, his soul tormented by the wickedness that he sees around him, he won't leave the city. He won't go back to Abraham. He won't go find some other place outside the city to live so that his soul will no longer be tormented why? Why won't he leave? And I think the best answer we have from the text is because there are certain benefits that he derives from being in the city which he just cannot bring himself to give up. So I'll, I'll use a, a silly little thing, but this is, this is where we go wrong so often, is we think these are silly little things. If Instagram is causing you to sin, and it's still installed on your phone, why? Why not rather remove it? Quit using it. Why... Why are the things that we find ourselves tempted by so often 
things which are so easily removed from our lives, why will we not remove them? Why will we not rather flee from that temptation? Because you see, there's nothing inherently sinful about Instagram. It's an app that displays photos. Nothing sinful about that. And yet, it is the cause of so much sin. And it's a, it's a little thing to simply delete it from your phone, and yet we just, like Lot who lingered, we just can't get ourselves to do it. Christian, I can't possibly touch on all of the little ways in which we are compromised as Christians because of the dangers of living in the world. The things that we are constantly exposed to, which we have become numb to, and no longer offend us, no longer cause us to turn away and to flee. We've just gotten comfortable with them. But listen, sin leads to death. And it starts with the little ones. The little sins, and now I'm going to talk to little people. Students, children, when your parents are, are creating boundaries for you, telling you what you must do and what you must not do, what your parents are trying to do is to help you recognize that we live in a world where all of these things are available to you, but not all of these things are good for you. And at your age, you are not yet ready to discern, to, to understand what those things are. And so your parents are trying to help you learn that discernment. I know it's frustrating. I know you don't understand why that thing is bad. I know that all you want is an iPhone and all of your friends have one. And maybe your parents have said to you, not yet. And you just, for the life of you, can't figure out why. This is why. Because your parents understand that there are dangers associated with this and that you are not yet ready to navigate those dangers. Be patient with your parents. They're trying to faithfully parent you in that. Okay, we've got to move on this morning. Second, and the rest of it's good news. Lots of good news left this morning. I intentionally made that the first point. The mercy and patience of God and salvation. Listen, this entire story is a little narrative of God's judgment and His salvation. So that, that we even get this little detail that it's by force that Lot and his wife and his daughters must be removed from judgment. Delivered from that judgment. They've been told the judgment is coming. They've believed the judgment is coming. They've told others the judgment is coming. But now the judgment is here and he lingers. And he, he lingers. You don't, don't misunderstand this. He doesn't hesitate. Hesitation implies that given just, just another second, he would have made the right decision. He does not hesitate. He lingers indefinitely to the point that the angels, by force, must remove him. And look at what the text tells us. The Lord being merciful to him. Listen, this is all of us, brothers and sisters. Every single one of us who is in Christ lingered. Every single one of us who is in Christ had to be snatched up from our sin by God in his mercy. 
And, and this, is, this is the truth behind Paul in Romans when he says, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. If Christ had not died for us until we were friends, until we were sons and daughters, there would never have been a crucifixion. Oh, what good news. Listen, if Christ died for us while we were enemies, what won't He do for us now in His grace and mercy? His patience is infinite with His people. So many little indications of patience here. Uh, the, the angels eventually, as the narrative goes on in this morning's text, they, they get more and more urgent. They arrive in the evening. They tell Lot what is coming. They send him to tell his sons-in-law what's coming. But as you turn the corner into morning, the angels are becoming more and more urgent. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot he lingers, and so they seize him and carry him out. They say to him, okay, now hurry. Hurry into the hills so that you don't get caught up in the judgment that's coming. And Lot says, I can't get there in time. Those hills are too far away. Let me go to this little city. And they say, yes, but go quickly, for I, cannot, or I can do nothing till you arrive there. The, the, there's this urgency and yet with Lot, this patience. Patience with Lot when he says, you've delivered me this far, but I'm going to make one more request. Rather than the hills, let me go to the city. And the angel says, I'll grant that one too. Patience and mercy of God. Lot is a type of, of us. He's, he's a foreshadowing, if you will, uh, in, in the, the illustration that this historical event represents the, the wicked citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah are the rebellious world that is coming under God's judgment. Lot and his family are those of us who will, by God's mercy, be delivered from the judgment that's coming and are being delivered and that mercy, listen, that mercy is inexhaustible. It is inexhaustible. This mercy is given to all who are trusting in Jesus Christ and repenting of their sins. So that you go out from this place this morning and you feel, you feel better. Right? You're reminded of the, the salvation that's yours, the grace and the mercy of God. But as you go out into your week and you encounter temptation and you struggle with the flesh, that, that principle of sin that's still in you, that's at war with the Spirit, and too often you, you lose those battles and you fall into sin and you come back into this place on a Sunday morning and maybe the thought in your head is, how in the world could I possibly belong to Him? and do these things? How in the world could he possibly be patient with me again another week? Grieve and hate your sin, but rest in the mercy and the patience of God, which is infinite for his people. And if you're trusting Christ and repenting of your sin, you are his you belong to Him. That grace, that mercy, that patience is for you.
Remember what I said when we began this morning, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the rescue of Lot, are teaching us about the judgment of the world. Christ himself says as much. Look at, at Luke 17. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. We're, we're not being creative when we read the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and we say this is, is teaching us about the final judgment. Christ himself draws them together and says as much. And as much hope as there is for us, mercy, grace, and patience that is inexhaustible, that is infinite for those who are in Christ, listen, this morning... If you, if you do not believe this judgment's coming, if you think we're jesting, if you think God is jesting in his word, you will be lost in the end. If you believe that the judgment's coming, but you are confident that you are good enough to withstand the judgment, to be delivered from the judgment. If you are upset because God has dared declare the way that you live to be sin. Who is this that has come to sojourn among us and now he stands as judge? If you believe that there's any hope for you apart from Jesus Christ, as suddenly as the judgment fell on Sodom and Gomorrah, it will fall on this world and you will be lost. That judgment is coming. No, no matter how long God seems to tarry, that judgment is coming. And there is only one place to hide. There's only one place to go to take refuge from that judgment. That judgment which is just, by the way. The only refuge that we can take is in the rock, Jesus Christ who like a shield has taken that judgment upon himself. As terrifying as this judgment is, and I, I've got to be careful because next week is the actual destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I've got to leave myself some material for next Sunday. But as, as terrifying as this is, fire and brimstone raining down from the sky until all is leveled and burned. Jesus Christ suffered that just judgment in our place. And that's why he's the only refuge. That's why he's the only one to whom we can escape. He's done this for us. Trust in him. Finally this morning, the power of God on display in salvation. God's power is on display in this text and his great acts of judgment. And we're going to see the greatest act in this story next week in the destruction. But already we have these, these displays of power as the, the men of the city are ready to break down the door to Lot's house. And it doesn't tell us how. It doesn't tell us what the, the mechanism is. Uh, we're left with the impression that they simply willed it. The angels blinded everyone outside the door. Don't miss how in their wickedness they kept groping for the door, right? Blinded, they don't turn and go home. 
They keep groping for the door. But God, in His power, with His representatives here, these angels, they snatch Lot back into the house and, merely by the will of God, blind everyone. God, God does not... I think sometimes we think about God and His power and His strength, and we imagine God exerting Himself, and even though we may imagine that He can exert Himself infinitely, we still imagine Him exerting Himself. Listen, He doesn't exert. There's no straining on God's part. He doesn't just have the power by His will to melt everything into non-existence. It's worse than that. He holds it together by an act of His will. God can destroy all things just by not holding it together anymore. That's the power of God. And God in His grace and His mercy, He tells us this. He shows us this in history, in His Word, and in history over and over again. God demonstrates His power so much so that if you've never ever seen or heard the word of God, you know that there's a God and that he is powerful, Paul says in Romans 1. The creation alone is sufficient to condemn every single person who has ever lived because you cannot look at the creation and fail to recognize that there is a God and that he is all-powerful and that he is to be worshipped and served. Suppress it but not deny it. You know it. There is such a God, and He is this powerful. And He not only exerts that power in destruction and judgment, but in salvation. Salvation for His people. God's power is on display for the sake of His justice. God's power is on display for the sake of His people. And this is why we we have a, a, a godly fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the author of the Proverbs tells us. But this is also why we trust the Lord. All of the promises that he has made to us, he is powerful to keep and faithful to keep. And he has demonstrated that faithfulness and that power over and over again. So this morning... For those of you who are in Christ, rest, rejoice. This is why we sing. This is why we lift our voices to Him. Because lingering though we did, loving us as He has, He has snatched us up from judgment and delivered us in Christ. This is our God. He loves us. He's patient with us. He's merciful. If He is not your God, if you are not trusting Jesus Christ and Him alone for your salvation, grieving and hating the fact that you are a sinner, looking forward eagerly to the day that God will make us, in Christ, new creations. A day that is coming in which all we will ever want with every fiber of our being, and that alone is the will of God and what pleases Him.
That day's coming, brothers and sisters. We've got a taste of it now, don't we? The Spirit is at work in us, and we grieve and hate because we love. But there's a day coming when that will be made perfect. That work that's been begun will be finished. And this is for those who are in Christ. Let me pray for us.